0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective
1: from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now, hosting this edition of the best of Radio Parallax, Graham Smith.
2: For those of you who missed last week's episode, uh, I will be filling in for Doug for the foreseeable future while he takes an extended break and playing a selection of the best Radio Parallax interviews that we've collected over the past 13 years. Today I'll be playing two interviews with Mary Roach about her books Packing for Mars and Bonk, the Curious Coupling of Science and Sex, followed by a very short talk with porn star Christy Canyon in one of her, I believe, four appearances on this program. Now, I know Radio Parallax has a lot of long-time fans, so once again, if you have any questions or comments about me or the new format, you can call the studio at 530-754-KDVS or you can email us at info at radioparallax.com. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the uh, incredible news that NASA had on Monday that running water has been found on Mars, and I thought I'd talk a little bit about uh, what it actually means since I'm sure a lot of people didn't go beyond just reading the headline, although, of course, uh, you Radio Parallax listeners wouldn't be among them. But just in case, I'll give a, a brief rundown of what NASA found. First of all, we, we don't actually have like, up-close pictures of the water. We only have images taken from orbit that show cliffs and the steep walls of valleys and craters streaked with the summertime flows of water moving across the surface of the planet. And they're sure it's water because they found hydrated salts in the dark areas on the surface that they believe to be water where nut had been before and the only explanation for these hydrated salts which are a mix of a bunch of different things is the presence of water or at least there's no known other way that they could be created and one of the reasons that we don't have uh you know we haven't had a rover just drive drive to where they think the water is and take a picture of it is that they're honestly afraid of biological contamination from Earth. It would be horrible if uh, NASA announced that they discovered life on Mars and then it turned out, oh no, that was just Earth microbes that were caught in the rover's gears. And that's why normally they take very stringent precautions on every single rover to sanitize them before they send them to Mars. But in this particular case, with Curiosity, there was an accidental contamination after they had already cleared the rover for launch where someone went in and fiddled with a piece of equipment. And that one mistake means that even though we now have a rover on Mars right there, we can't actually drive it over to the water for fear of this kind of contamination, which is unfortunate, but hopefully they will figure it out by the time we launch the next rover to Mars, or maybe we'll actually get some people down there to take a look themselves. I also thought this would be a very topical day to play this interview since The Martian, the movie starring Matt Damon, comes out today about a guy who gets stranded on Mars and has to find a way to survive. It's sort of Apollo 13 meets Castaway. And Mary Roach in this interview talks a lot about what it would take to survive that kind of a long voyage. It certainly added a uh, psychological flair to the whole process that uh, I I didn't think the book covered particularly well since it was really more of a love letter to science and engineering than anything. But uh, if you've read the book or are planning to see the movie, uh, definitely pay attention to this upcoming segment. So without further ado, here is our interview with Mary Roach.
0: We knew upon hearing our guest today speak at UC Davis last year that we would want her back. After concluding a talk on Bonk, the curious coupling of science and sex, writer Mary Roach mentioned that her next book would be about the odd problems involved with human space voyages. That topic has approximately the same relationship to this program as candy does to a baby. So it is that she tours the country to promote... Packing for Mars, the Curious Science of Life in the Void. We're delighted to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Mary Roach.
1: Hey, thanks, Doug.
0: Uh, Mary, your books probe areas that people are curious about, but that are, I guess you'd say, delicate to investigate. Uh, let's, let's start with the fact that many people think the biggest obstacle to manned missions to Mars will be psychological. Keeping a crew in small quarters for a year from killing each other, or from at least personal strife, is a serious concern based on experience.
1: Absolutely, yeah. They, you because know, you think about space, you're in a, you're locked in a room with five or six people uh, uh, that you didn't choose them. So you've got in, in a Mars mission, two years more or less. Uh, that's a long time to be stuck with people that, uh, in a fairly stressful situation, and you, and the other things you can, you know you you can't slam the door and go out for a drive. You're really soaking in it, and what happens? Uh, um space psychiatrists say that after after about six even just a six week mission you start uh, they start to kind of withdraw get a little less patient um and they get a phenomenon called displacement which is when you you don't want to pick a fight with your crewmate because you know you depend on these people for your survival so you tend to take it out on mission control and you get very grumpy with the people down on the ground or well, the other thing that can happen is you turn that frustration and anger inward, and and if you do that, if you sort of repress it, you tend to get depressed. And depression has been a problem on uh, some of the mirror, uh missions. Uh, people got depressed. I spoke to a cosmonaut. It was just one of these amazing lines. He said, "It <laughs> kind of sums up space." He says, "He says, yes, I did. I got very depressed. There were times when I wanted to hang myself, but of course." In zero gravity, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> so such a Russian thing to say.
0: Well, I, I was going to say, your books are filled with anecdotes that don't uh, turn up elsewhere, and those investigations you made into the Russian space program look to be um, uh, especially fruitful. I, I wanted to cite one tale that you mentioned um, about that subject of crew rebellion, which which really struck me. I guess as the cosmonauts one day are unloading a supply capsule for the Salyut space station, they notice some onions and they're supposed to observe <laughs> yes. the onion bulbs sprouting in zero g. <laughs> yeah. They decide, spur of the moment, to eat them instead.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was just they were somebody had sent up a science experiment to see will onion bulbs bloom in space, and we're talking <laughs> early, early days of, of space exploration. So, no, it was a lot of unanswered questions. And the crew, uh, they they open up everything, and they've got they've got some lovely some rye rye bread or some some I think it was rye bread, and they and some salt, and they look at the onions. And (laughs) they cut them up. And then later, the scientist calls up on the radio and, like, how are the onions? Oh, the onions are, they're fine. Did they bloom? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep, they bloomed. Yep, they bloomed. And and the scientists are just going crazy. They're so excited. And then the the cosmonaut says, "Uh, could we take this off uh, uh, into a private space? Okay, listen, for God's sakes, we ate your onions.
0: (laughs) It's good stuff. I was amazed. I was. I've I, I read a lot about some of these early space missions, but you found something I'd never seen before. That uh, that the Russians, out of fear that Yuri Gagarin might sort of have his mind blown by being out in space, they took some precautions as to his operations of his own space capsule.
1: Yeah, they they locked the controls. It was a, it was a difficult kind of a, a, a dilemma because they wanted they they didn't want him to be completely. Unable to control the craft in case of an emergency, but they didn't. They wanted to. They wanted to control it themselves because they feared he, yeah, you know, his his mind would be blown. Exactly. So what they did is they had a a secret combination to unlock the controls, which was put in a sealed envelope that he was not to touch. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of like a game show.
0: Well, zero gravity, or I guess it's more properly microgravity, is a very weird state for the body to find itself in. A lot of biological problems and. You talked about that in the book quite a bit. Uh, Without gravity, for example, a person doesn't really know that his bladder is full and he has trouble peeing, which is a serious problem.
1: The way your bladder lets you know that it's time to make a trip to the toilet is that there are these stretch receptors. And, you know, as the liquid, you know, it's at the bottom halfway through the lower half of the bladder and it's filling up and it's causing these receptors to stretch But in zero gravity, the liquid is not in the bottom of the bladder. It's all around clinging to the sides of the bladder by surface tension. So by the time you get those stretch receptors activated, your bladder may be so full that it's pressing on the urethra and it's difficult to go to the bathroom. And then, you know, you've got to to call out the self-catheterization kit and maybe a medical consult down to emission control. So going to the bathroom in space is not always a laughing matter.
0: Well, most people have seen those, uh, those photos of people bouncing around in, in those aircraft-flying parabolas to recreate uh, zero gravity, and that intrigues people, and I guess you had the chance to do some of that. I'd like to talk about what that was like from a first-hand experience.
1: It was so fabulous. It was this, uh, yeah, it's a, this parabolic flight where the plane's doing a roller coaster up and down, and on the, the downward part of the, the um, flight, when you're heading down precipitously, you've got 20 seconds or so of zero gravity, where you're just you're floating like a soap bubble. And I wondered what... I kind of thought it would be like floating in a swimming pool, but it's different because you don't feel any... You know, In a pool, you'd have the resistance of the water. The other thing is that your organs inside you are now weightless, and you don't realize what your organs inside you... Your organs are kind of... You know, your heart is hanging off the aorta, and things are resting against other things, and, and there, and it, there is a very subtle sensation that you don't realize until it's gone and then you just fe- hmm. feel like lighter than air and you are and it's it's uh i would just love to do it again
0: <laughs> well in talking of that zero g environment you ran down a very curious rumor that uh, someone had filmed a porn film in flying those parabolas and you looked into that What well, what did you discover
1: yeah, I, I saw a uh, reference to this film, the Uranus experiments, which was a porn film supposedly shot on one of those uh, par- parabolic flights, like we were just speaking about. So I, I contacted the producer, who's in Spain, and I asked him, and he said, "Oh yeah, 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 we yeah, we did that." And I said, "You, what did which plane did you?" use? He said, "Well, I have a timeshare in a private jet company, and that's what we did." And I said, "You got the pilot of a private jet to do parabolic arcs?" Yeah, 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 we did. And so I thought, okay so he was kind enough to send me a download to the film and I'm look I'm watching it and you get to the the, the scene you know where the, the, the zero gravity sex scene and it's a, it's an oral sex scene and uh so and I and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking all right and I go wait a minute, wait a minute, wait 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 minute. she's got a ponytail and it's hanging down her back
2: <laughs> and
1: uh basically what they did is fl- flipped it over so that it looks like the guy is floating it's just he was on his back and turned it over. And for the scenes where they're supposedly in zero gravity, they're kind of, their legs are hidden behind a console, and they're kind of going up and down on their tiptoes and waving their arms <laughs> in the air. It, uh, sadly, it was not shot in well, zero gravity.
0: Well, we're sad to hear that, but yeah. uh, while you put that one to bed, as it were, this greater issue of sex and space is is out there. No one seems willing to talk much about it. And What what, what do we know about the 200 Mile High Club?
1: Well, I I was in Star City and. Outside Moscow, where the cosmonauts train, and I spoke to a number of cosmonauts, uh, a bunch of them who are uh, retired now, and I brought this up. And the the, the mission that most people gossip about is uh, uh, was uh, Valery Polyakov and Elena Kondakova who were up on Mir for uh, uh, a significant chunk of time. And I asked my source, I said, "So, so you know them? What, what do you think?" He said, "We were always asking him. So, 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 did it happen?" And apparently, Polyakov would say, "Don't ask me this question." And he also, my source pointed out that uh, Elena Kondakova is married to another cosmonaut, so they all know each other. It would have been uh, a, a little bit complicated, but who knows? You know, I, my sense is that if it had happened, somebody would somebody would tell somebody else, and you know that as an astronaut, particularly at NASA, if you want to fly again, I, I think you wouldn't risk doing that. That's that's just my guess, because you would get you know, it would be a big public flap, and the press would be all over sure, it, and, sure. and uh, it's, uh, you, you'd lose your career. My, I was telling my agent this story, and he goes, yeah, it might be worth it, no?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, another touchy subject, I suppose, along the same lines is space sickness. Uh, it turns out this is uh, something astronauts don't want to talk about, but it's, to this day, is a huge problem on the shuttle and the space station.
1: Yeah, space motion sickness, the statistic I saw, t- uh, 50 to 70 percent. Of astronauts are feeling a little under the weather the, the first few days that's why you don't see spacewalks in the first couple of days when the astronauts go up because uh, as one person at nasa put it to me they're off in the court <laughs> in the corner in the fetal position <laughs> but they, uh, they and you can you can use drugs but the problem with that is that you delay adaptation and if you're up in space for you know two weeks or three or four six whatever months as some of the space station astronauts are you, you you need to adapt. You need to let your body go through the adaptation. So you have to kind of muscle through a few days of feeling really crappy. Well,
0: another another delicate topic that's a huge problem: hygiene in space. Uh, the showers apparently don't do not work too well up there, and it's pretty tough to keep people from sort of smelling bad while uh, while in orbit.
1: Yeah, they uh, the showers don't work. The water just the water comes out and forms a big sphere. It doesn't. Uh, and if you hold it close to your body, then the water ricochets off your body and you have lots of tiny spheres that you then have to chase down all over the spacecraft. It really, really doesn't work. It tends to cling to concavities in the body, like the eyes and the no- nostrils and the mouth, so you could you could drown, <laughs> very easily drown in the shower. So the guys on the uh, Salyut space station would wear a snorkel mask when they, when they showered. That was one of the few showers that ever actually flew. Now they just use moist towelettes and sort of, you know, wipe themselves clean. Hygiene. Uh, I, I I came across these wonderful, uh, back in the Gemini era, they, at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, they had a space cabin simulator, and one of the things they were studying was what happens to skin, uh, armpits, et cetera, when you don't bathe for two weeks while wearing a space suit because they, their initial plan was to keep them in the suits, in the pressure suits, the whole Gemini mission. And some of those, one of those, at least, was a two-week mission. And so they, these poor students from Dayton University would come over, and they'd be paid to sit in a box with the temperature cranked up, wearing a suit, their underwear literally decomposing <laughs> as time went on, and having people come in and sniff their armpits and see how their smell was developing. It was a, a really surreal research.
0: <laughs> We're speaking with author Mary Roach about her most interesting book, Packing for Mars, The Curious Science of Life in the Void. Uh, Mary, a few years ago, an astronaut alumnus visited UC Davis and, uh, and I started to ask him about something I was curious about, a book by um, another astronaut, William Pogue. It was titled "How do you Go to the Bathroom in Space?" But uh, before I could say public relations and starting to ask him about this, <laughs> he steered me away from anything about this awkward area and uh, and it's you know it's an important question, how do you cope with nature's call while in orbit? And Mary, you looked into this.
1: No, I for sure did. I have the what I like to think is the definitive chapter on zero-gravity elimination. Uh, it, it, it It's tricky because a toilet on Earth relies on gravity for the material, to use a euphemism that NASA uses. <laughs> yeah. The materials, you know, as, it, as the mass of the material grows, the gravity, growing weight of it, pulls it. It drops away from the body down into the toilet. Well, that doesn't happen in space. So you have this problem, this separation problem, as they put it, so And in the early the um, Gemini and Apollo flights, there was no toilet, there was no bathroom, there was a fecal bag. And you basically uh, had to, and, and to get the separation, you had to use what's called a finger cot, where you put your fingers through, and you know you're, it's like little gloved fingers, and you would have to effectively nudge the material away into the bag, mix germicide in, roll it up. It was incredibly off-putting and distasteful process, and the astronauts hated it. There was this great line when, uh, after Apollo, they were getting some feedback from astronauts, and they were all complaining about the the fecal bag. And one of the uh, brass at NASA says, we have to do better. (laughs) And they did. They came up with uh, these very, very fancy, uh, very loud, complicated uh, toilets that use air flow. It's kind of like a shop vac. It kind of entrains the bolus, is the uh, other euphemism I love. So you're sort of wishing the material away. But the, the, the other problem then is how do you test this toilet? Well, you take it up on one of those zero-gravity flights like we were talking about, and you have 20 seconds for the volunteer to <laughs> test the toilet. And, you know, you can imagine, if you think about that, that's um, quite a challenge. 20 seconds. Ready, go!
0: <laughs> yes, it is. Wow. Um I, I just had to laugh when you described how one Japanese researcher said he was um, testing people in, in an isolation chamber, and you asked him about stressors, and he says, "Yeah, I'm thinking about disabling the toilet," which turns out to be just an all-too-realistic uh, simulation, I guess.
1: Yeah, I, I was imagining setting fire to something in the sleeping quarters and seeing, you know, so, you know, something more along the lines of Apollo 13, something kind of life-threatening. And but the more realistic problem, that something that you know that happens routinely in space, is. The toilets not working, and so that's uh, they felt that that would be a good way to see uh, to test their metal.
0: Well, Mary, New Scientist magazine gives your book a fine review. Uh, they were struck by your reflections on the fact that early in the space race, engineers were thinking about making parts of the of the craft edible—an idea they moved away from, but uh, I guess still remains viable.
1: Well, you you could. Yeah, they were. There was some wonderful uh, thinking outside the box that went back that went on back in the sixties when. Uh, the aerospace people thought, well, well, we'll get to the moon, and then right after that, we'll be on to Mars. So let's think this through. How are we going to do it? And you don't, you don't want to be launching all of the food for six people uh, initially into space for a two-year mission. That would be a lot of a lot of food to be launching. So on the way home, you could be you just commence eating parts of the ship that you don't need. That is true. <laughs> the other thing that they suggested uh, was uh, eat your clothing that that could be, uh, when you're done wearing the clothing instead of just putting it aside in a laundry pile because there's no laundry facility, or, well, they were thinking there wouldn't be, that that you would then eat, you'd make it out of edible keratin fibers and you would eat the clothing. Or you could, uh, food could be used as radiation shielding, line the capsule with food on the way there, and then on the way back when you've eaten that food, you'd use the weights material as your radiation shielding. And there were all kinds of, Marvelously uh, innovative and bizarre uh, notions. And what we end up doing, uh, hard to say because it'll be a while since that till we go to Mars. So, you could always send unmanned resupply vehicles. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, your book is filled with all sorts of, uh, of little wonderful stories like that. We don't even begin to scratch the surface on that, so people are gonna have to read it, read it on their own, I think. But as we close, I wanted to bring up m- um, my favorite single anecdote from the many you have in the book. After NASA elected early on to send chimps on their first space flights, this this sort of bruised the egos of a lot of the astronaut corps. And so, some years later, they elected to honor the grave of Ham, the first chimp that was sent up. Someone had the bad judgment to invite Alan Shepard to attend the <laughs> yeah. ceremony, and he apparently still had some ill will toward his rival primate in space.
1: Yeah, there was—I don't know what the the publicity people were thinking—that because the, the, yes, uh, there, there's this great anecdote about how on the trailer that took the both the the chimps and the astronauts, Mercury astronauts, out to the gantry. There was a trajectory, you know, they plotted Alan Shepard's trajectory, and then someone from the veterinary department plotted Ham's higher and farther, because Ham actually went higher and farther than <laughs> Alan Shepard did. He said they ripped that card down right away. <laughs> right away. <laughs> so, yeah, they, uh, they, they didn't mingle much, much the, um, the Ham group and the Alan Shepard and the, the Mercury 7.
0: I also want to note, too, to please note, you vindicated the first chimp in orbit, Enos. He apparently got a bad rap from some space historians.
1: Yeah, Enos had a nickname. Enos the penis, and and there have been a couple. There was a rumor that started. One of the space writers, popular uh, chroniclers of space, said that this was because Enos had a, a habit of touching himself, and that there was this all that. And then it kind of went from there. People were talking about how they devised a balloon catheter to prevent him from touching himself. There were there was a story about him pulling his Diaper down at a press conference and then the light bulbs come off. Anyway, um, I called Enos' handlers, uh, who are in their 7 the two of them, they're in their 70s now. The guy said, said Enos, his that his nickname had nothing to do with that. Who told you this? We called him Enos the Penis because he was such a son of a gun. He was a, I won't use the slang. Right. But anyway, he, um, he said, No, that's not true. Who told you that? But I tracked it back through like, four different books. And it would change slightly in each telling. And, you know, where Enos was, uh, you know, because I, I had a chapter, I have a chapter on sex in space, and I thought, oh, here we go. Well, here's the first orgasm in space. It was Enos. <laughs> and I was all excited. But, yeah, with, in fact, poor Enos. I cleared his name.
0: I, I applaud your, your, your efforts for doing, doing exactly that. Uh, f- final question, Mary, after all you've learned about the hardships of human space flight, uh, the question is would you play a space tourist on the space station or would you pack for Mars?
1: I would love to go to the moon. Send me to the moon. Absolutely. Two weeks to me, that's the perfect amount of time. I'd like to be walking around on, a, on, a, on another heavenly body. I, um, Mars, I don't think I have what it takes psychologically for two years in a can. You don't want to spend two years in a can with me. You really don't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Mary Roach, it's, uh, again, the book is Packing for Mars, The Curious Science of Life in the Void. It's a great read, and we hope that a lot of our listeners will go out and grab a copy because they, they will be well rewarded.
1: Well, thank you so much, I and mean, that was a really fun interview. Four, three,
2: two, one. We need to take a short break. You're listening to the best of Radio Parallax. I'm Graham Smith, sitting in for Douglas Everett.